How's working from home been going for you? Remarkably Remote from GoToMeeting will help you succeed in today's new normal. In just three minutes or less, we'll share simple but helpful tips to keep you on track, from managing your motivation, workload, and relationships, to hosting and attending virtual events that keep you connected with your clients and colleagues. So check out Remarkably Remote on your favorite podcasting platform or head to gotomeeting.com backslash tips. Welcome to this week's edition of the Magic Hour at the Forum Club at the Athletic LA. Brian Kamenetsky, Andy Kamenetsky, continuing our run through great sports movies. Joined this week by our colleague at the Athletic LA, a white man who can't jump, which is why we thought of him. Brett Dawson. Brett, how are you? That is accurate, and I am well. Thank you. <laughs> Actually, all kidding aside, the the reason that we did think of you is listening to basketball reasons. You're podcast with uh, Bill Orem, who you also, well, the four of us cover the Lakers, uh, you know, when they play. Yes. Uh, you know, I'm old enough to remember when the Lakers used to play games <laughs> and the NBA used to uh, host games. But uh, in a recent podcast, you were talking about, Brett, how, you know, as a movie guy, you've been recently watching a lot of L.A. movies because um, you've also only been living here, what, like a year or two? Uh, no, like six months. Yeah, okay. and, most, and right. most of it, he's been forced to stay at home. Like a, a fifth of the time I've lived here, <laughs> right. basically, I have been He's not been allowed to leave his house. So, so we, we yeah. were thinking, all right, let's, let's have Brett on, but let's continue this theme and find an L.A. sports movie uh, to dive into. And you'd suggested White Men Can't Jump, which is awesome because I love the movie. So here, here we, we are. And it's a 1992's White Men Can't Jump, directed by Ron Sheldon, unquestionably. A sports movie kind of cult classic thing. I'm not even sure it's it's probably even beyond cultish. It's just like it's kind of it an iconic. Right, it was a huge. It's right. way too big. It's hit. an iconic movie in sort of sports from people who have seen it, who haven't seen it in a long time, whatever it might be. This is one of those just just the name, just the title of the movie um, puts it right up there in some of the the biggest sports movies of all time in terms of our consciousness for it. Um, I hadn't seen it in years. I don't know about you guys. It had been a long time since I'd actually sat and watched from beginning to end every scene in White Man Can't Jump, except, you know, as opposed to a couple scenes here and there, a clip on YouTube, whatever it might be. It was, I was surprised. We'll get to some of this live, but I, it, it surprised me, Brett, what I saw in this movie. Me too. I was trying to think about the last time I saw this, and I, I would guess it was like maybe around the year 2000, maybe. I mean, it's been a long time. And that, at that point, was already a classic movie. It had been out for eight years or whatever. Um, but it's probably been close to 20 years. It was almost like a new movie for me because there were entire details about it, like entire little side plots that I had completely forgotten. I forgot, for instance, a very important detail of the movie that at one point, Sydney turns around and hustles Billy. I had, I had completely forgotten. Mm -hmm. I remember when they go to Watts that they lose but I did not remember until, you know, they actually showed it a few minutes later that that was intentional, that Wesley had that, that uh, Sydney had done that on purpose. Yeah. And, and it's a lot of fun too, like the reveal yeah. of that mm -hmm. and, you know, like the idea of essentially Sydney holding a grudge against Billy for the first time that they met and Billy hustled him, which, you know, and we'll get into all of this, frankly, 
Sydney should have seen. Yeah. Yes. Sydney actually should have seen Billy's thing coming because there were there were there were a lot of tells and a lot of things coming up, particularly the minute Billy stepped on the court. But again, we will get into all this. Yeah. So uh, let's let's set the scene with the lineup here, and um, you, you heard some of those names. This is another thing, like you, how you how you know movies have some staying power. Just the names: Billy Hoyle, Sidney Dean. Like these are sports character names, sports movie character names people know. Snipes as Sidney Dean, Woody Harrelson as uh, Billy Hoyle, uh, Rosie Perez plays Gloria. After I mean, there there aren't a lot of people of consequence in this movie. It's really a movie about the three of them, and then uh, just you know, what um, a blatant right, Ronda, disrespect. Right, Ronda Dean. What blatant you know, disrespect of Kendall is great. She's this. a terrific actress. She's great in this. And then, you know, other people pop up. Uh, Marcus Johnson as Raymond is fantastic. Um, you know, Kadeem Hardison is in it uh, from a different world. Just complete disrespect uh, when you say nobody else notable. Just complete disrespect for Kadeem Hardison. Just vicious <laughs> disrespect. I mean, he's sort of doing Kadeem Hardison from a different world, it seemed like. I had forgotten. If I remember. Is there another Kadeem Hardison, though, really? I mean, like, that's pretty much <laughs> Kadeem Hardison. There is a moment I had completely forgotten when they're at Sydney's apartment and they're watching the Laker game. And, and I believe it's Kadeem Hardison who says, oh, that's Kadeem. Somebody in the somebody in the apartment is watching it. They spot Kadeem Hardison at the game. It's a very meta moment. <laughs> I, I gotta go back. It's not that I missed. It's very under the. It. It's very under the radar. It's like uh, it. It predates the whole um, Ocean's Twelve situation. Yeah, so this is this is the <laughs> second of four movies that Woody Harrelson and Wesley Snipes would eventually do together. They were in Wildcats. Uh, that was eighty eight, right, Andy? Eighty six. Eighty six. Which a movie that we will eventually get to on this podcast because I love that movie. Um, and then they would they did this white man can't jump they would do money train and uh play it to the bone so four times wesley and uh woody have been put together and they became really good friends on the set of wildcats and you know they they played a role in getting each other cast in the movie which uh, we'll eventually get into as well but like their their real life friendship brings so much to this movie and just like the way that they play off each other and, you know, just the fact that they have a real chemistry, like it, like it's actually there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, White Man Can't Jump, directed by Ron Shelton, of course, the uh, the big sport. Everybody sort of associates him with sports movies. Bull Durham in 88 was, uh, a, a to say the least, a launching pad for, for Ron Shelton. This was the second movie after Bull Durham that he did. He did Blaze in between with Paul Newman and Lolita Davidovich. Um, Horse racing. Is that good, that movie? I don't remember it. I don't remember it being great. I, I remember Lilydia Davidovich being, being a thing for like 20 minutes. But I, They're I, married. Get out of town. I forgot about yeah. that. So here's the thing. I'm from one of the horse racing capitals of the world, Louisville, Kentucky. And I've seen Bull Durham a bunch of times. And I've seen White Man Can't Jump a bunch of times. I did not know this movie you're talking about existed. Really? I did not know that was a thing. I did not know Ron Shelton had yeah. written a horse racing movie. I say, yeah. I mean, I always consider it a politics movie, not a horse racing movie, but that's just me. Okay. Um, it would, he would go on to write Blue Chips. Is it not a horse racing movie? Blaze? I, I remember it being about horse. Maybe I'm thinking of the wrong movie. It's a middle, the, the log line on uh, IMDb is a middle-aged Louisiana governor falls in love with a young stripper, which jeopardizes his political career and the radical policies that have made him a controversial figure. Okay, you know what I think I'm thinking of? Secretar- <laughs> I think I'm thinking are, you thinking, of are you thinking of Secretariat? <laughs> 
No. <laughs> Seabiscuit? <laughs> I think I'm thinking that's of what I meant. There is no movie called Secretariat. Seabiscuit. I think I'm thinking right. of Hot to Trot. <laughs> I think that's actually what That I, I didn't know existed. That is very different, yes. I think that's what I was yeah, thinking Yeah, it's of. a politics movie. Earl Long okay, for I, governor. I stand corrected. I, I'm, I, I know I've seen the movie, but I'm thinking of a completely different one. Also, uh, apropos of nothing, I think there is a Secretariat movie. Oh, there okay. is. Yeah. Is it called Secretariat? There is. Um, uh, yeah, it's uh, Jeff Bridges. Yeah, I, I think and so. To- and, I, and Toby McGuire. I think it is just called Secretariat. Also. Jeff Bridges yes. as Secretary. It's easy to get it confused with Seabiscuit because they're just two horse racing movies named after the horse. Oh, maybe that is Jeff. Maybe Jeff Bridges is the. I think uh, Toby McGuire's in Seabiscuit. But okay. I do think I, there is a Secretariat movie. I've never seen it. There is but one. I, I think I, there it does is exist. Well, maybe okay. the podcast doesn't goes on long enough. I guess we'll get to both of those. Um, but he would. So th- this was. Uh, Blaze, as it turns out, was sort of a, a, a brief interruption. He goes on to do White Man Can't Jump, Blue Chips, Cobb. He writes a screenplay for that. Uh, writes a screenplay for Great White Hype, Tin Cup. So, like, he goes back to Ron Sheldon just kind of sticking with sports, I think. You know, he is the ultimate stick-to-sports guy. Um, and then, you know, Tin Cup comes out in 96, and that really does it for him isn't there a so, real there's some irony here because that movie you described blaze it's like ron shelton goes off and does a movie about politics and everybody's like hey man stick to sports stick to sports <laughs> that's right um some clarification by the way uh sea biscuit <laughs> is with toby mcguire and right. jeff bridges sea biscuit as sea biscuit secretariat <laughs> was was with john malkovich and diane lane mm. but both movies do in fact okay. exist just right. to, to clarify that for everyone. is it one of those deals like prefontaine and without limits where they both came out at the same time and <laughs> no. confused everyone no 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 they're several years apart they apparently only confused us <laughs> okay or really you <laughs> i knew what blaze was about um, no no i, I were secretary and seabiscuit okay you're right um, but this movie did very well. Blaze and Hot to Trot came out too close to each other, apparently. <laughs> so White Man Can't Jump, Andy, as you mentioned, did very, very well. It had a budget of $31 million, gross $91 million, which uh, in 1992 dollars equates today to $473 billion. Um, that's how much times have changed. But it did really, really well. Another huge hit for Ron Shelton after uh, Bull Durham. Uh, so... Very good uh, news for them. It is, uh, I think, you know, to sort of get into the performances, I think what really lets this movie hold up for me, because there are certain things about the plot, things that happen off the court, whatever it might be, that I don't love, that I think are a little thin in spots or whatever. I thought it is uniformly well acted. Everyone who matters and a lot of people who sort of don't are all really good. We started to get into those performances and the chemistry there. But like the, 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 the dialogue on the court, the stuff happening off the court, all of these guys are fantastic. Yeah, it, um, the, the three lead actors are what really makes it go. And, mm-hmm. and um, I think particularly rewatching it, like I remember the first time I saw this thinking like, I'm going to walk out of this movie listening to Rosie Perez's voice. And now I, I love it. I like she, she to me sort of makes the movie go. Um, and it, it, everything about that performance, I love, I, she is great in this. Well, it's interesting you say that, Brett, just because, you know, at the time, you know, when she did this movie, she was not quite unknown, but she, you know, her only substantial roles had been in do the right thing. And I think in a lot of ways people remembered her 
in the opening montage boxing more than they remember the actual performance. And then she had a a role in the movie Night on Earth. But this was by far the biggest thing she had ever done. And, you know, she followed it up a a year later with an Oscar nominated performance in Fearless, which she's phenomenal. Oh, my God, she's good. And she really, you know, she's had a successful career. But I think if she had come, you know, come along 10 to 15 years later, when, you know, there was more representation in Hollywood in general and, and somebody like her, you know, her voice is distinctive. I remember there being like a lot of polarization about her voice, you know, especially then when, to be honest, Latinas weren't getting cast much in anything, you know, now. Not, with it not being, like now. <laughs> no, I mean, they, but better. It's better. cast more now. Better. They're cast way more now than then. You know, I mean, it, it may not be enough now, but, it, you know, there are projects now specifically for, you know, Latinos mm-hmm. and people of color in general. Like, I think she, if she had come across 10 to 15 years later, she could have been a massive star. And, and she is so good in this movie. And it's it, like you said, Brad, there's a lot that's actually driven by her in this. Yeah, she's she's so good in it. And I think what was funny to me rewatching it now is that the voice doesn't bother me at all. It, it's It's just part of who she is as a character. And I think it's also... There is an element to which she grates on Billy a little bit, right? And the voice kind of plays into it. It's a really genuinely great performance. She is so good. And I think Harrelson and Snipes are both really good in this. And Wesley Snipes is up and down as an actor. And Woody is very up and down in terms of the stuff he chooses to do sometimes. But is pretty consistently good, I think. And they're, I think they're both very good in this. But she, to me, she's the she's the not the star of the movie, but she's the performance that I'm most drawn to. I, I was just going to say, it's an interesting point for what, uh, Woody and Wesley in their careers in this movie, because like they're all three of them are in different phases of establishing themselves. But like Wesley at this point has already had a few above the title hits, like pretty recently with New Jack City and Jungle Fever and, you know, like Mo Better Blues, like stuff that he's been seen in. And he's starting to really cement himself as this guy who can do anything. He's making, like, he's making all the money that would eventually get him in trouble with the IRS. Yes. <laughs> True. Um, like, you know, he does Passenger 57 the same year. So, like, over the course of, like, a two-year period, he goes from being this, you know, supporting character actor and stuff like King of New York to a major star and, like, a major star that's seen as he can do anything. And then Woody Harrelson... He did this movie while he was still doing Cheers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's starting to establish himself as somebody who can be respected as anything other than just Woody Boyd. And, you know, I mean, I, everyone loved Woody Boyd, but Woody Harrelson wasn't being taken seriously as an actor. And then over the next three or four years, he does Natural Born Killers and People versus Larry Flint. And, you know, this is this is really the launching pad, like his first starring movie where you see the idea of him, you know, carrying a movie in terms of his acting, in terms of box office. And then, like we said earlier, Rosie Perez is really just introducing herself. So you've got this uh, establishment moment for all three of them, but in different places that I think is just really interesting. Like this is what, for obvious reasons, Wesley Snipes is first build on the poster and all that kind of stuff. I mean, the movie is really about Woody Harrelson's character more than it is Snipes. For sure. And one of the things that I think is interesting, um, you mentioned it, he's he's still doing cheers when he does this and he plays kind of a dumb guy again and he's playing kind of a dumb guy on cheers what i think is so interesting about the character as it's written and the performance 
they're not they're not at all afraid to make him unlikable. He's a bad person for much of this movie. Um, he has a charm about him, um, but he's not a likable character all the time. He's really mean to Gloria a lot of the time, like like uh, aggressively mean. He tells her to shut up. He tries to control, you know, we'll get into her drinking, but he very much tries to control it. The, the fact that he aggressively tells her to shut up, he, he's not always a good guy. And he's certainly a little bit racist. Um, and 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 Woody's able to kind of pull all that stuff off. And you never really stop liking Billy, even though you probably should, which is, I guess, sort of the crux of the movie, because it's this that's the same case for Gloria. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I wouldn't say that I think Billy Hoyle's a bad person, but I do think he's frustrating. And like you understand, you understand both what attracts uh, Gloria to Billy Hoyle, but you you understand why she's so frustrated. You frankly understand why she drinks so much. And, you know, like you understand a lot that's going on in their relationship. You know, the time that she's with him is often spent cooped up in these small, crappy places. Like, you know, she must really, you learn how much she loves Billy when she has sex with him in that shower. Yeah. Because That's I've the, never I met a woman I who would ever go into that shower. I wouldn't, even, I, wouldn't like, have, I wouldn't shower in that shower. Right. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Like, I have, I've yet, I and mean, I don't even necessarily mean with me. I mean, just no. period. I don't know any woman who'd go in a shower like that, much less for a moment like that. So, I mean, she really, do, she really does love him. And the amount of chances that she gives Billy at the expense of her own life. And, and I love the, the choice of her aspiring to be on Jeopardy. Is great. Oh, so good. Like that's a great yeah. and, character and, and, choice. And I want, I want to talk, spend some time before we're done talking about the actual Jeopardy scene and the choice yeah. that Shelton makes writing it, and and because it, it's really really good, uh, and I think goes a little bit against expectations of what you think are going to happen in that moment. Um, but I, and th- this is one of those things that it's always hard to tell. Like I don't, it's the what's on the page versus what the actor brings versus what's not on the page, what the actor brings, but is kind of given to them by the director. And it's it's hard to know in a movie like this because I think what makes them so good is they're both both Wesley and and Woody are able to kind of to to be flawed and show why they're imperfect characters and imperfect people without being either totally villainous or totally heroic, which is I you know what makes a, a great character what you know what makes people. Um because you know, I, you know, Woody is sort of like a like a almost like a a hustler, you know, who doesn't you know. Let me put it. I'll, I'll go backwards. Wesley is a hustler who, at his heart, I think wants to be something better, like wants to be uh, something a little more honorable. And Woody just can't get out of his way on the way, to, given every opportunity to try to be more honorable and try to be a better kind of more straight person who can go just go do something for his girlfriend who obviously loves him and just can't can't slash won't whatever it is and so that contrast where you know when when snipes for example apologizes to woody after that game which he threw like when you go back and you watch it and i watch it twice you're right it's like he's actually apologizing like he feels bad because he knows he just torpedoed this guy and it's going to screw up his relationship and he's not going to be able to sleep at home and all that. It's the game and it's the and it's the business that they're in and that's what they do. But that apology wasn't fake. It was real. And I like moments like that, you go like, damn, 
I wonder if that's in the script. I wonder if that's the direction. I wonder if that's just something the actor gave. But both of them have moments like that all the way through the movie. But then he gets over it. Yeah, well, he does. He ends up getting over he it. He does. Because it's the game. And they, right. They, and they all do. And it's like, and, you know, I, when, when they're at the part where, you know, they, where Woody puts up the, the, his half of the, the tournament money for the, uh, the 2500 of the 5K, he tries to talk him out of it. Like, don't do this. Like, I don't want to take your money. But once they make the bet, those are the rules. I'm going to take your money now. Yeah, that, that scene is incredibly frustrating. It drives you insane. Because that is where you start to think, like, this is why maybe, maybe when I say Billy's a, a bad guy in a lot of ways, Billy's a really bad boyfriend. In a lot of he's ways, a terrible, oh, yes, he's, he's like a really bad guy. To, no he's, he's a, a bad guy to end boyfriend. up with. The best thing about the movie, honestly, is that Gloria leaves him at the end and she commits to leaving him because he's proven over the course of the movie that he's not going to change. That's the one thing. And I think the movie leaves us with the hope that Sidney will change him in time. But what we know right now is that he is not changing. And then well, Sidney further evolved than yes. Then I was going to say for, you know, for all of the flamboyance of Sydney as a character and the trash talking and, you know, the alpha male, he's actually a pretty good husband and a pretty good partner to his wife. And, and he clearly wants to take care of her. And, you know, he works like nine different yeah. jobs and stuff like he's actually he is trying. I mean, you could argue that maybe he spends more time on the court than he should for, you know, in terms of a return on investment. Well, there's you know, e spend more time ego thing. He's good at it. Right. Yeah. Ego exactly. Thing whatever. But. Exactly. But but at the end of the day, he does actually care about trying to make his wife happy. Like he's actually a much well, better partner. Well, part of it is he's, he's hustling in in other places like, you know, we're. It, it, I don't want to say it's exactly what we did, but like, look, Andy and I have 73 different jobs. Like you're always <laughs> saying yes to this. You're always trying to meet this person and kind of read the room. Is this the kind of thing that maybe down the line I might be able to get a job out of it? Is this somebody who might need a writer or a creative or something like we're all we all go through these mental gymnastics with with in, in, even in just what we do. And he is literally a hustler. And so. In basketball, 100% comfortable with the hustle. He knows the rules. He knows how to do it. And he's good at it. When he goes and he's doing the, the home, you know, the home improvement, the roof and the, the tile and all that. It's like he's playing. He's much more playing a character trying to do that. And it's, it's, it's a different kind of hustle. You're getting the, you know, suburban white guys to come down to, you know, the neighborhood, okey -dog. Uh, the okie dog and stand there and, um, where, by the way, you can get an egg sandwich for $1.50 at the Okie Dog in 1992. Um, and, like, do that. Like, that's a different hustle. And he's not comfortable with it. And it's in, there's insecurity there, which is, I think, another really great part. Now, this is the thing something Shelton was doing when he was writing the, the movie. Like, comparing those two things is really rounds out that character and that performance in ways that I thought were great. And I didn't totally remember. Yeah. That's why I think at the end, what we're meant, I think what we're meant to take away from the end is that, is that Sydney will help Billy to get, to be more like Sydney. Sydney has given up on, he hasn't given up on the basketball piece of it. He understands there's more to it. He's going to have mm -hmm. to do some more. Um, he also understands that you can't just be throwing your money away to prove yourself. Um, and I, I think the idea is maybe Billy will learn from all that stuff. But, you know, if we if we extend this out into the, you know, future universe, I don't think Gloria goes back to him. And I think that's important. No, no, I don't no, think so. Nor should you. But before we move on to authenticity, uh, moving past performance, I just want to give a quick shout out to former NBA player Marcus Johnson as Ray. Yeah. He is fantastic. He is so funny 
in this movie. And like the, 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 when he gets pissed off at the end, when he realizes that he got hustled, I'm going to go to my car, and get, my, get, get my, my other get gun, my glove shoot everybody, <laughs> get my other shoot gun. everybody's ass. Like the look, what's great is the look on the guy's face that he'd been playing with is like, wait, what? <laughs> like, what are you doing? <laughs> when he robs the liquor store, there's some crazy motherfuckers out here. Yeah. Like, it's, I just, I love that. I great. love the scene where he goes to rob the liquor store and the guy's like, Raymond. <laughs> Me too. Just like watching it again this time, it, there's a way that you can totally, you just make him put on the mask and go rob a liquor store. And it's such a casual idea of this guy goes and grabs a gun and sticks somebody up. It's much, much better this way that the guy recognizes him, that you realize he's not a um, a guy who's going to just go do this to get money. He's trying to, you know, he, it, 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 they right, make more crazy. of a joke out of it yes. instead of making it. Uh, it's not so stereotypical when they play it the way they played it. Right. It's crazy. You know, the the the, the guy from the, the the hood who goes and robs the liquor store right. to get the five hundred like that. That's a joke that's not going to hold up well and really what wouldn't have held up then or shouldn't have. But the way they play it now, where he's not really trying to, he's just, just once he's crazy. He's the guy from the neighborhood. Everybody knows he's crazy. Right. He's not going to shoot that guy. No, now, he, he might shoot not. everybody on the court, but he's not right, going to shoot. No, shoot he definitely was, but he's not going to shoot that guy. Ron Shelton actually based That's that right. on a real life experience um, where, where he, he had been playing, uh, he'd been playing in a neighborhood and there was a regular to pickup game. That uh, on a blocker charge argument ended up shooting someone That's, like literally. Killing it's the Rod Artest story about getting stabbed with a table leg or whatever. Right. It was. Um, and obviously Shelton's version is played more for laughs than uh, the seriousness of what really happened. But, you know, stuff like that can happen when tempers fly. But he based that on a real event. Let's it was uh, a blocker charge argument. Let's talk about authenticity pre Rex Chapman, even in his Twitter feed. Uh, authenticity, obviously a huge uh, factor in any sports movie and a controversial one in this one. And I, I want to start on this. Obviously, tons of pickup basketball. I think they do a really good job of kind of capturing the energy of pick of, uh, of street basketball and pickup ball and all that kind of stuff. They also just really quick. I just want to put it out there because it's huge. They nail Venice Beach. Yes. Like they I, I lived in Venice Beach during the time of this movie. They nail everything, like in terms of what it was like, you know, on the courts. I used to go down there and watch games all the time, like the atmosphere. You got Happy Harry on the rollerblades with his guitar, like the thong muscle guy doing curls. Yeah, everything. You know, the, the people talking. What they're like, wearing you know, to play pickup ball, like they just they yeah. nail it. Like, and you know, this is Venice before it got cleaned up more and gentrified more. And, you know, it was less a, you know. It's less of a pure tourist attraction the way it used to be. Like, you know, Venice used to be a lot dirtier, but they, they just nail it. Um, and I think they do a great job around everywhere they go. You know, the tournament, which is held at Lafayette Park, like all of that stuff, like all of it plays. And it's all it's all pretty authentic feeling. The major controversy out of this is whether or not Wesley Snipes can actually play basketball. And the sort of the 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 the, the story that has come out of it and the, the enduring opinion is Wesley Snipes is awful at basketball. Woody is light years better. And the disparity between the two of them is like one of the major flaws in the movie. So again, hadn't seen it in a while. Went back and watched it. Watched it again. If you're really, you know, we spent a lot of time breaking down NBA basketball. And this, and you can see some stuff with Wesley that's a little bit... I, He's not nearly as bad as as sort of the the popular memory says. 
Not at all. Like, I, I thought he he seemed okay. Now, look, there are a couple things if you're watching. If you notice, Wesley can put the ball between his legs. If he does anything much more than that, you don't see his face. It's, it's, he clearly learned it for the yeah. movie. He learned the between the legs right. dribble for and the And if movie. it's really extensive, if he's really crossing, you don't see his, That's a stunt double. They've, they've clearly cut to a place where it's not Wesley Snipes because you don't see his face when he does it. Woody is a much better ball handler. You can tell because they can put in tight. They can, he can be in the whole frame. His whole body can be in the frame and he's doing some of these dribble moves. Wesley, not so much. But I mean, but it's, it's fine. It, yeah, it's fine. It's, it's fine. fine. I mean, it, like, I, I think the urban legend of this, because I mean, everyone knows that like Wesley had to do more pre-movie training than Woody. Woody grew up playing basketball. Like ball, ball in college. Did. He actually like, just like Billy Hoyle, Woody Harrelson played a little ball in college. Right. So, I mean, like he was much better than Wesley to begin with. That being said, Wesley is a really good yeah. athlete in real life. He's just not a basketball player. And more importantly, these guys are supposed to be small time park players. Like there's, they shouldn't be good past a certain Well, if point. you're going to hustle, but no, but if you're going to hustle at a certain level, like Wesley, the other thing is he, he clearly only has a right hand. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, with, oh, no, he and, has no jumper. Right, like in real life, with he, all he the, couldn't hit a jumper. Right, with all the slow-mo that's in there, you know, which I, I am sure they went to slow-mo that much just because they can control it better, kind of make it, make it seem more dramatic or whatever than, than, than it, you know, it looks to make him look better. There's still a lot of moments where you're looking at that ball going, I don't know how much he's going to, it's almost off his hand. Look, <laughs> now come back. I mean, he's, right, he's but, clearly not great, but it's, it's not, I expect him to look like you, Andy, like, you know, where it's just like, you know, like, you know, like you're dribbling, like, womp, 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 like you're like an open palm. And like, you can't do anything. Like, Michael, like, I expected Michael J. Fox and Teen Wolf. And it's not, it, he looks fine. No, it's not, at, no, if, he, if nobody told you that Snipes sucked at basketball, you wouldn't even think about it. No, I mean, you, you wouldn't be convinced that, you know, this guy could have been an NBA player, but he's not supposed to be that good. I mean, this is somebody that on a good day, like on a good day, will clear $200 all day playing basketball. Like he's not supposed to be like neither one of them. I mean, Woody's better, but neither one of these guys is supposed to be past a certain point. Yes, they may be hustling people, but those players aren't supposed to be good past a certain point either. Yeah, like it, these are wreck yeah. guys. It reminds me. They're, they're, I was playing. There was a the time I was you know, back when I, I used to play, go out and play basketball because, and then I got too old and it started hurting too much. There was a guy, you know, you switching around, you do this, and some guy who's literally a foot taller than me, like he's almost, he's like six eight, six nine, six ten, and I, you know, switch. I end up guarding him in the post, and I'm I'm five nine, like definitionally. If I'm leaning up against you, I'm up sort of against the small of your back or whatever. And he gets the ball and he turns around, takes a shot, and he just points at me. He's like, don't ever try to undercut me like that. I'm not I'm like, I'm not undercutting you. I'm a foot shorter than you. He's like, you do that b- bullshit again. I'm going to dunk on your ass. Like, okay. You're a foot taller than me and we're playing at the LA Fitness, man. I mean, yeah. like, okay. Like, what, I'm supposed to be, like, put off by that? So, to your point, Andy, there is... There is a limit, I guess, as to how good, you know, all of these guys are supposed to be. But I will say well, how good they need to yeah. be. Yeah. But there, there is a level and I think they get there. It's fine. It's good enough. So speaking of height and dunks, I wanted to get into something here. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, both these guys are tremendous in great shape for this movie. And Woody particularly looks like a basketball player. You can see that Woody has played some basketball because he's he's kind of long and lean. And notably, he has Shannon Brown's calves. It's ridiculous. 
Woody Harrelson's calves <laughs> in this movie. It's it's unbelievable. But I looked this up just to make sure. In real life, and I don't know how much you know we're supposed to take real life into account for these two characters specifically. Both these guys are about five ten, five nine and a half, five ten. The weird expectation that Billy would be able to dunk baffles me. Like, like the fact that at one point, Sydney, who's who just you know dumps on him all the time about how 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 bad a player he is, that he just assumes why didn't you dunk that is amazing. It's a five ten white guy, man. Like, why is there well, an they expectation don't dwell that he on could? that? Though. I, you know what though? They don't really dwell on that. Like you are, you are assuming that. Um, you are assuming at that point that um, they're a little taller. Like, I think they both, they do a good job in this movie not saying that either one of those guys is short and not necessarily, you know, Marcus Johnson is what, like six, seven or something like that. Yeah. But like they don't, they put them around other people, like their height. I just sort of assume, oh, yeah, these guys are six, one, six, two. Okay. Like, but even then it's like, yeah, I mean, not every six foot one guy can dunk. Yeah, it's, like, it's like the way we're supposed to believe Rocky is tall enough to be a boxer, despite the fact that Stallone's like five, six. Yeah. You know, I mean, like they, they you shoot it and set it up in ways that these guys never look too small. Right. That, that didn't occur. To and, and I don't think it's not like either one of those guys are thought of in the same way that you think of like Tom Cruise. Like yeah. Tom is a Tom Cruise, is a short actor and everybody knows it. So if he's going to play a basketball player. And like the joke is he can't dunk you. It'll take you out of it. But I don't think most people know how tall Woody Harrelson is. I think also, though, there's there's this. I mean, the movie is very frank in its uh, in its stereotypes about how certain players play. Right. And the fact that that white guys are not athletic is part of the movie. So that part just really confuses me that there's this scene where he's saying, hey, just go dunk it on that guy. Why didn't you why didn't you jam it or stuff it? I forget exactly the word he says. Um, but it, it's it, it and it doesn't feel like it's mocking. It feels like he genuinely thinks he should be able to do this. Well, I, I, one thing I think is actually really funny about this movie uh, before we get into the the race end of it, because I actually think that in a lot of ways this has to do with why it was more important that you cast Wesley Snipes as opposed to an actor who who would have been better at the basketball part of it. Like you see these guys criticizing each other's game throughout all the games, like Wesley, uh, Sydney, and Billy criticizing each other. And what I kept thinking is like, you know, this is like the running dialogue in so many star NBA players heads. Like, you know that there are so many times where if LeBron's inner monologue became his outer monologue, he'd be pissed off at some of these guys. We're just like, dude, just do it. Like, you know, and something these guys in their own minds are stars. You know, they are stars of their environment Stop. and stars Stop always think they're great. I agree. If you guys could pick two or three guys to turn their in-game inner monologue into an outer monologue, who would they be? Hmm. LeBron for sure. Yes, absolutely. Uh, because LeBron is smarter than everybody else. And so like yes, anybody who's smarter than anybody else, what they're really thinking is fascinating because what they're thinking is these guys, even the, even the sort of smart ones, they're idiots because they're not as smart as me. I feel like Brian and I heard plenty of Kobe's inner monologue, <laughs> like Kobe's inner Kobe's, monologue and his outer monologue. Yeah, Kobe, they, they were. Well, part of it was Kobe's inner monologue, even when he didn't say it out loud, was written on his face. So you could, you know, you could kind of guess, like, I would still love to hear it because just the amount of the, the, the mixture and amount of expletives in there would have been incredibly entertaining. But it, it's not like, like LeBron hides it better than yeah. Kobe does, like the, the anger and frustration. I would have liked Nick Young's inner monologue to be the outer monologue. 
Because I just, I wonder what's, I would have liked to know what it was and how much it was actually the game versus everything else. You know who I think would have been fascinating is somebody like Tim Duncan. Yes. You know, who was like renowned as the ultimate teammate, never really said much anyway, could play with everybody. How much of that was just him truly being malleable? And how much of that was Tim Duncan with his poker face being an amazing actor of what he actually felt like? How many Understanding times, like needing to do that from a leadership standpoint. Like, well, like just how many times right. in his head is he, is he like frustrated with Jaron Jackson? Right, but, like, <laughs> like, but, just, but you can't like, show it. Can't say it. But so, he can't right, show it. Right. Can't show it. But like, you know, we always think of Tim Duncan as this guy who never got frustrated with anybody and would accept all his teammates for who we were. What if like in real life, Tim Duncan despised all these guys because they weren't as good as him. Like he basically just, he accepted like Manu, Tony and Kawhi and, and David Robinson. And he thought the rest of them were just damn scrubs that he had to put up with. Like that would be really fascinating. to learn. I think the other one that would be really interesting is a guy like, I'm trying to think of a good example, but a guy like right now, like Devin Booker comes to mind right now. Like a guy yeah. who's just stuck on a bad team. He's miserable. The one I always think of, the, the moment in NBA history I would most like to hear the inner dialogue as an outer dialogue is probably the JaVale McGee play where JaVale saves the ball, thinks the other team has it, and he runs past John Wall with the ball out at the top of the key. Like <laughs> early Wizards John Wall, who had never lost in his life, you know, had never been on a losing team, had never played with guys who were, you know, JaVale at that right. point in his career was pretty disinterested in winning. I think just wasn't didn't know what he was doing yet. You know, Andre Blatch, guys like that, that that era of John Wall would have been fascinating. I, I bet there were days when John Wall was literally counting the days to free agency. I, I think I actually would be really interesting to hear the difference between JaVale, early JaVale's outer monologue and current JaVale's yeah. outer monologue. Yep. Like the, that would be a, a huge change. That'd probably both be pretty would've. interesting. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but anyway, I derailed your point, Andy, but because uh, you said something interesting. It's your own fault. Um, well, I, I was going to get into that. And I think this is uh, along the lines of authenticity in the movie. Um, and one of the reasons why it was ultimately so critical to cast Wesley Snipes as opposed to an actor that maybe could have looked better on the court. Wesley and Woody, they're, they're so good together in part because they know each other really well. They knew each other well when they made the movie and they're, they were naturally competitive in real life with each other. And they would push each other to different places, but also too, like the conversations that they have about race in the movie and throwing stereotypes, like you mentioned, Brett, about like, you know, white and black people on the court, off the court, like throwing them in each other's faces. I was reading an Entertainment Weekly article about, uh, about the making of the movie. Woody said, when we're talking with each other, a lot of it was improvisation, real conversation. We all have our prejudices. In a way, I think this helps disarm the viewer. And like, apparently they cut a lot of stuff that was even more harsh. And Ron Shelton said it got a little racial, led some very good discussions about where the lines had to be drawn. And, you know, Woody and Wesley really wanted to push the line. And I think that doesn't happen in a way that's as palatable for the audience in the movie, even when, you know, there's an edginess to it, certainly then. I mean, this is the early 90s. You know, Hollywood didn't address race you know, for studio stuff, this overtly, you know, in a comedy, you know, certainly back then, like, I think you need that comfort level between those guys, especially if they're going to be improvising a lot of it. So that's why I think it were in a lot of ways was so critical that it's specifically Wesley and Woody in this. Yeah, movie. I think to the point about Woody, I do think you need a guy who's 
charismatic and who makes you like him because he says some stuff over the course of the movie. I mean, he says a white man wants to win first and uh-huh. look good second. A black man wants to, you know, the, the, the opposite wants to look good first, win second. He says some really inflammatory stuff. At one point, he's in the car and says, can someone tell me why this Negro is singing cowboy music? That's incredibly <laughs> inflammatory. And, and, and even now, it, now it rubs you the wrong way, probably even more than it did in 92. Um, but at, at its heart, as, as many dumb things as Billy does, he's Woody Harrelson. He's got a charm about him that is hard to resist. And that does help make some of this terrible stuff he does a little more palatable. Well, I think to the resentment that both of those guys clearly have, I mean, especially uh, Billy at the stereotype, you know, to the yeah. point that he loses the, the, his half of the tournament money to try to prove it wrong um, is, is one of the things that's interesting about it. Like, you know, there's, there is, Sydney clearly doesn't like the idea that he is not interested, not competitive, not there to win the game, not there to win, and, you know, it's just about the, the flash of it all. And obviously, I mean, Woody deeply resents the idea that he's not good, he can't fall. Because that's essentially what it comes down to. You, you know, I can't, you can't jump. Really, what you're accomplishing on the court, you can't really play. It doesn't really count because what you're doing isn't, you know, isn't the stuff that matters. Um, but that that notion of the the black athlete only cares about the style and the substance was the thing that, tr- you know, that kind of dogged NBA athletes like for the last, you know, in terms of like for people who were unwilling to kind of give credit, you know, and, and think of people as, as fully formed people like for decades. Oh, I mean, forget it's, NBA athletes, but, partic- but, athletes but, partic- but particularly in the NBA, I think too, but like, you know, the, it's the, 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 the flashy black quarterback who runs instead of standing in the pocket, like John right. Unitas. I mean, all the, it goes everywhere, but I just, as a basketball construction, it was, you know, the thing I think that was, or a thing that sort of, always felt like an undercurrent, you know, well, ultimately, like, you know, it's the, the white guys who run the operation, the white coaches and other that are really interested in driving winning. Well, and it's still like a thing today, this idea of like, you know, the, it's, it's become a joke because it's such a stereotype, but the stereotype still exists. Every, every good white player, with the exception of maybe like Luca, you know, he's like, oh, he's the guy who's in the gym first and he's really cerebral and he's the last guy to go and he works so That's hard. What, work ethic yeah. is still such a talking point about white athletes in a way that it's not about black athletes. There's still a lot of this stuff, you know, like it, it's. I, I would I would just say like we can't look back at a movie from 1992 and say oh look at how unenlightened oh, no, we used no. to be. Look, look, there's a reason. There's a reason I always make the joke about Alex Caruso that he has great hands and runs excellent routes. Yeah. Like that is you know what you say about like, the part of the reason he's a phenomenon is because he's a bald white guy who can dunk and jump and all this stuff. And we just he's like it's like a platypus. We just look at him like he's this exotic creature. And but if he were if he was black then. Nobody would think twice about it. Same player, same athleticism. The actually probably what would get ignored is what he does defensively, how hard he works and all this other stuff. Like it would take six months longer for somebody to look at his defensive metrics and be like, oh, did you guys realize that they're like 11 points better for every, every time Alex Caruso plays? Like that part of it would take longer to discover. And one thing I think is really interesting and smart about the way the, the movie's written and the way these guys are, are acted is 
for all, you know, like, and what we were talking about in terms of the, the black, the stereotype of the black player, he would rather look good than win, you know, the way Billy Hoyle lays it out versus the white player who wants to win first, doesn't care how he looks for all of Sydney's flamboyance on the court. And like, he's always on, he's always in entertainment mode, never met a ridiculously fancy layup that he wouldn't take. He takes the game less personally, like he's less emotional about it. It's a job like the other nine other jobs that he has. And Billy, for all the presenting himself as, you know, he's all business about the game and he wants to win the right way. He takes it so personally and so to heart, it's what leads to all of his bad decisions. Yeah, right. Like he couldn't throw the game for the Stookies. He can't resist that dunk bet. Like he's actually the bigger hothead with the game. No question. Than yeah, Sydney. for sure. But it's also, I think that's, that's really it's, smart it's, in the it's movie. from that insecurity, you know, and it's core probably is because he's the white. It's basketball is the only place particularly urban basketball is the only place where white people are essentially the sort of the outsiders who are inherently, I don't want to say less respected. That's not what I mean, but like less powerful. They have the, le- they are the, they, it's the only place where white guys have a smaller place in the power dynamic. Um, I also wanted to bring up too, when we're talking about the race in there, cause it's, it's a scene I know you love too, Brian, the, the scene where, after they had just hustled Raymond and they're in uh, Billy's car and Billy puts in uh, Jimi Hendrix, uh, Jimi Hendrix cassette and Sydney's reaction to it. I want to play this clip and then also talk about like beyond it being funny, why I think it's so smart and like intentionally used. You know what? Nobody has done that around here since the King and Duck Johnson. King and Duck. King and the Duck. This. Jimmy Hendrix. No, I know who it is. Why are you playing Jimmy? Well, because I like to listen to him. Oh, you like to listen? That's what the fucking problem is. Y'all listen. Well, what am I supposed to do? Eat it? <laughs> no, no, no. You're supposed to hear it. Hey, I just said I like to listen to it, man. No, 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 no. There's a difference between hearing and listening. See, white people, y'all can't hear Jimmy. You, 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 you listen. What the fuck are you talking about? His drummer was white. Get the fuck out of here. Jimmy Hendrix's drummer was not white. Yes, he did. Yo, check it out. See? This is a picture. Whole damn band is white except for Jimmy. This is a fucking picture, man. This is Air Plus bullshit. Jimmy Hendrix did not have a white rhythm section. You cannot hear Jimmy. All right, fuck. All right. Thank you. All right, so... it's funny in and of itself. Like, I mean, that's a really funny scene between them. And, you know, the whole damn band is white. But what I think makes that so smart and, you know, the choice of Jimi Hendrix is because Jimi Hendrix specifically went through these issues as an artist of not being black enough for black artists and, you know, popular with white audiences, but they didn't quite get him and recognize his roots as a black artist. And, you know, black audiences often found you know, Jimi Hendrix to be this guy who was clowning himself and putting on these type of clown shows for white audiences. And like he formed the band of gypsies in part as a reaction to this, where he went from having an all white band to an all black band. And Jimi Hendrix himself was this artist for whom race was this murky issue. And and I, I'm guessing that they chose specifically Jimi for that reason. And it's just a really smart one. Either that or they could just make the joke about uh, Mitch Mitchell and uh, who's uh, Noel Redding? 
No Redding. Yeah. I, I think it's more than that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm, you're right. I'm but guessing it, but it is. either way, it works out. It's, um, and there, so wait, we have uh, we we're, we'll move on to the next category. But we have, I, I just want to I, I mentioned it before the uh, the question of how they handle the Jeopardy thing. I think when you what your expectation as an audience member, she's going to go on Jeopardy and get crushed because sitting there and reading an almanac, um, it's not really supposed to do the job. You're not supposed to uh, be able to do it. So when Gloria goes on and she you know, misses the first question about Babe Ruth and, uh, you know, and then mispronounces Mount Vesuvius, but they give her credit for it. And like, you're like, oh God, this is not, and you expect her to like to have her dream crush because that's kind of what's going on in the movie. And then she just kills it. And it's awesome. And you can just see her pride, like I'm putting in all of this work and then words that, you know, foods that start with Q as an actual category um, comes up. Like she studied all these things and she gets it. It's like, I love that scene. I love everything about that scene. I love the way that people look at her like, oh my God, I can't believe you're getting all these things right. Like the one guy, like incredibly sort of angry and frustrated and the other dude completely in a shocked, like, look, look, I, you know, good for you kind of way. Um, that says a lot too, but that, that, the way that scene gets played is so good. And I, to me felt counter to what the expectation was going to be. It is worth noting because it is a fantastic choice. It's so good. I have a couple of accuracy problems with it. They would not give her Suvius on they would not. <laughs> And you're not allowed to, you're also not allowed to buzz in before the question is over. Correct. Which she does a couple times. Correct. Um, yeah, it's not a family feud. Um, no. <laughs> I'm also a little bit confused about the logistics of that. The entire movie, she keeps saying Jeopardy's going to call, Jeopardy's going to call, Jeopardy's going to call. Billy makes some kind of deal to get her on the lot. And right. then she says later that Jeopardy called. He said that they, he said they wouldn't, but they did. I don't understand her understanding of how she got on the show. And I don't understand how getting her on the lot facilitated getting her on the show. That part confuses me. I also don't understand when Billy wants to take uh, his $2,000 and play it, um, you know, go go for one last go. He doesn't tell her, look, man, if not for Sydney, you're not on the show. We got to do this for Sydney. Yes. That's classic it, movie. No, because, it, well, it would have been because, and I, my answer to that is, at that moment, he was still trying to learn the lesson that Wesley was teaching him. Like, be a good boyfriend, listen to your wife, and knowing, like, one of the things that makes Gloria clear, and I agree with you, like, the, the how, they just sort of gloss over it, but clearly she thought she earned her way onto that show, or earned her opportunity, or whatever it was, or fate, fate brought it yeah. to her. It was important to her that this was something that happened organically, and that it would have tainted it forever if she knew that Woody basically want to hustle to get her this opportunity. So he can't tell her because it would ruin the experience. Well, he could, and, he, he could at least split the difference and, and say, look, Sydney needs this because his house just got robbed. I'm playing really for Sydney. That you come with that me. She could and, do. That, that he could like, do. But I'm just saying. He, in he terms could have of, told her a half truth. It's also. Yeah, but it's not just saying in terms the, of ruining the Jeopardy. That makes thing, sense. Although to me. You've also got a debt to Sydney here that you have to sort of help him out. And you also don't want to ruin your life to do it. So the way to do that is to say, look, he really helped us here. And we, we owe this Can we loan him money? Um, right. But I, I understand your point about Why don't about just let it. him borrow like $5,000 or something? Like she's got low interest. I, 
hey, can we just float him alone for a little while? That's true. Okay. She's, I mean, speaking she's, of the money, we were to assume that she goes money. on to win much more. I mean, like, that's, yes. that's what I was going to ask. It, it's never totally established how long she remained on Jeopardy as a champion. Yeah. Like, we, we know that she made some scratch, but it, it's never really established. Well, no, Did she had like got, a three game she, run. No, she didn't say. I, I, my, I took the timeline to mean they were done, they went into like the weekend taping. And then she's got to go back next week and she's sort of figuring it out. And again, there's, they tape like six weeks at a time. Right. So it's like, there's some details here. But she was talking about almost as if they tape it every day. I'll win for another three weeks. And like, she's laying it all out for him. And then I'll go to Hollywood and then I'll do this. And it's not all totally accurate about how Jeopardy actually works. But um, and plus, too, like she would have won. And then like the thing would have been on the air. And like six months later, it would have been on TV. Yeah. So like There's all kinds of stuff that doesn't really work in that. But um you know, the, the, the destructive thing to do would have been to crush her dream, to try to make himself look better and look like the hero here, which is exactly what he's not supposed to do. You're not supposed to fix the woman's problems. You're supposed yeah. to empathize and understand their dry mouthedness, which is but one he's still of the actually, funniest things I've ever heard. He actually did fix the problem, though. He didn't actually learn that lesson. He's just now covering it up. But, yes. but look, this is actually something that really does drive arguments between men and women, like the, the you know, the water and the, uh, the dry mouthedness. Yeah. Like it's kind of an exaggerated version. It is, but it's, it's men, perfect. But I was going to say it is thematically dead on because men really do try to solve it. Well, but it's also too, it's like, it's also, it's hearing the emotional resonance of a problem. It, but it's also too, it's like that problem is in like the way that women will talk to men and in, in, in where you have to be like a, like a Navajo code talker to be able to figure out what, like that is such a straightforward request. I'm thirsty. Right. Yeah. Like where, oh, okay. Would you like some water? <laughs> like that's, it's where like it really does get to the ways that men and women talk past each other in the most exaggerated way, because that one is, that's not some sort of emotionally reeling where you're putting out the tell and the guy just doesn't pick it up. I'm thirsty. Oh, when he gets in trouble for bringing her water, like you, you, you totally understand that frustration as a guy. Like, right. wait, I mean, it's what? too simple a problem for empathy. Right. Like, right. there's right. nothing to be empathetic <laughs> yes. about. Just like, it's I brought you water. Solved. How am I the bad guy here? I brought you a cup of water. But again, it is thematically dead on. Like it really is. With I think without getting stereotypical, without getting cliche, like it really is. I think a, a real observation. Yeah. Also, too, when when like right after that argument is when they first get spotted by the Stookies and they have to run out of the apartment, if or the the motel. If Gloria is carrying nothing as they're running because she's still mad at Billy, that's a brilliant choice. Like if that's actually oh. the reason that that Billy's carrying everything is she's still mad at him. Like that's fantastic. That was, I, I did have a little nitpick a about how line. she doesn't. I don't know why you're running so why you're running so slow when carrying everything. Yeah, I have a, a little difficulty with that one, just in the sense that they are very poor. They run out of there. She doesn't take any books. Later, she's got books again. I don't know where she's getting all these books. <laughs> like, how are they? How are they paying for these new books? Well, maybe maybe he was carrying her books, yeah. or maybe like, they maybe circle maybe back maybe at was... some point. Like, they didn't check out, so the room is still theirs technically. Maybe they That's circle right. back and get some books. Anyway, can we? What time I, was checkout? I want to quick. I want to. <laughs> I want to make a quick point because you brought up Gloria and the water. Can I talk about Gloria's drinking for one second, or is yes, that somewhere sure. later down the road? No, no, that's no. this is good. Go for it. So. We, we're meant to we're led to believe, certainly, that Gloria has a drinking problem. We have the like telltale early signs that movies and TV shows like to give you that she needs a drink to cope 
um, that she wants to drink and he doesn't want her to. But I don't think the movie does a great job. She doesn't drink that much. We never see her get like blackout drunk. And what we see is a woman who her job when they introduce her on Jeopardy is former disco queen. That's her job. So not maybe <laughs> yeah. the most marketable set of skills. She's got some mobsters. <laughs> not anymore. She's got mobsters on her ass. They're chasing her from from apparently across the country. Right. These guys are trying to get their money. Her boyfriend is kind of an idiot who keeps blowing all of her money. Gloria deserves a drink. She deserves to have some wine when she wants yeah, it. That's true. She needs this stuff to wind down a little bit. So she drinks. She's drinking when Billy shows up the first time we see her and he takes it away from her. And then he goes to take a shower and she goes and sneaks some more. That's that's the, the big telltale sign of problem drinking. Right. She also drinks a bottle of wine at one point when she's waiting for Billy to come back when he is hours late and she has cracked a bottle of wine. She's drinking straight from the bottle when they go to Sydney's house. Uh, notably, I thought this was nicely subtle. Um, Sydney's wife offers her a drink and it's coffee. She goes and gets the alcohol herself and a couple of glasses. It's very forward of her in someone else's home. Um, but like to me, clearly, by the way, Stoli is uh, some product. <laughs> yeah, yes. They just happen to have yes, Stoli. It's at the, the only kind anybody ever drinks. Well. Um, but to me, I'm like, I, I understand what they're Which, trying nice, to do. By here. the way, nice bottle for uh, poor people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like like uh, Gloria, you know, their, their economic situation may be dire, but she's not going to drink I mean, crap. Yeah, I make more money than both of uh, the both of these families. And I think twice. Yeah, they're not that. getting the, they're <laughs> not getting the plastic <laughs> handle of. Uh, no, of she, there's no pop off for Gloria. Yeah. But anyway, to me, I was just like, I understand this. And I think there's a couple of reasons you want the alcohol thing to be there. One, it does sort of one. It gives her a fault. Uh, it gives her a flaw. And she's almost a, a superhero in the movie in a way. And so it's probably good to just try to get they're trying to give her something, I guess. Also, maybe right. some problem drinking explains why she this woman who is really street smart is still sticking with this guy who's bad for her. Um, she's got a couple of problems. So she's working through some, I, some I emotional honest, problems. I, I, maybe maybe there's some things in there that didn't make the final cut. I actually yeah. my bigger problem with her drinking is it just doesn't amount to anything. That's the thing. It doesn't right. we never it's, see it, it as a problem. It's totally immaterial to the story. Yep. See, and I disagree. Wants her I to actually, stop doing it. I I think it explains. I think it, it's an interesting explanatory detail about the character. I don't think it's supposed to drive the plot at all. I think it's just supposed to be something that speaks to the relationship that they have. And I don't think it's judgmental at yeah. all. I, I don't think it's it's making a poor. But it doesn't. I don't, I don't, even, really think think it, I don't even really think it impacts the relationship. Like it's, it's I, nothing, it does say something about his supposed to degree of control. It's I. I think it's just about how unhappy she is with a lot of this. And, you know, she's trying to basically bail them out of this through that's getting fair. on Jeopardy. I think it's just about her unhappy. Maybe that's I, what I, it is. I think it. Right. You, I mean, when you meet this woman, you recognize immediately because she's drinking warm Stoli by herself, you know, in a crappy hotel. She's unhappy. And, you know, when you see that she's got this like, you know, mason jar of dollar bills and stuff like that, you start getting an idea of why. Mm -hmm. Like, so I, I, I actually thought it was a really uh, interesting detail. I guess uh, I resent the implication that drinking oh, God, means right. you're unhappy. I, I resent, <laughs> I resent that implication. I do think it's telling about right. his, it's telling about Billy's control over her. Again, he tells her more than once in the movie to shut up. At one point he says, spit out your gum. Like very, like, like he just tells her not like, Hey, right. would you mind I'm not chewing that? It's, I'm tired of the gum. Spit it out. Don't drink. It does say something about Billy being a little bit controlling. It also, again, so Billy's like controlling and he blows all your money. What are you doing, Gloria? Yeah, there, there should have been a point, if nothing else, where Gloria's like, I'm in charge of all the money. You never yeah. get to touch it. I go with you to these tournaments. I take the money immediately from you. Like, I, I don't want to 
I don't want to, you know, victim blame here, mm. but there's a little bit that Gloria could have been doing to at least exercise a little more control over yeah, this. Yeah, that that's actually one do. of the, I mean, that's one of the interesting things about the movie is that people are constantly warning other people to not trust them to yeah. do certain things. Like, you know, you know how this is going to end. Wesley warns Woody, Woody warns, um, uh, warns, uh, Gloria, like, don't give me that money. Sure, it's a good idea to give me that money. It's not a good idea to give me that money. Um, like everybody always warns everyone else about, you know, Gloria warns Woody, like, do this again. I'm, I'm going to leave. You know, like everybody does it. And so um, I, I appreciate that. Let's talk about timelessness because obviously the movie's a big hit, made $90 million. It is uh, an iconic movie in, in sports, sort of the sports movie thing, just based almost entirely on the name. Like just the name itself, White Man Can't Jump. You know, the, uh, the black white dynamics, the Woody, Wesley, all that stuff. My question to you guys, because it's obviously a major pop culture thing. I don't think we can, there's really no point in debating that. Is it timeless, though, for the reasons after watching it again? Do you think it's timeless? Timelessness is f for the reasons that most people think it is. You know what I'm saying? Like, Brett and I, like, I, it was a different movie than I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be much more like these guys. Brett, you said before we started, like, <laughs> you were surprised there was no montage. Like, them going around LA, hustling everybody and yep. this and that. Like, I almost thought of the plot, like, remember, it was like, and then at the end of the movie, guys are going to be coming after Wesley and Woody and they're going to try to take him because they got hustled and like, everybody's after these two guys and none of that happens. Um, but, you know, so I just, I, I, it's a different movie than I think people think it is in its, in its place in pop culture and why it's such a big deal. Yep. It's a little smaller than I remember it being. Like, from that standpoint, I thought there was mm -hmm. more I kind of remembered there being more of them hustling. There's really not. They don't spend that much time doing it together. They're, they're, they're antagonistic with each other about basketball more than they're in sync with each other. Um, so you don't see them like make a lot of money doing this. Um, and no, it's, it's not the state. Yeah, right. And it's and it's much darker than I remember. It's not a super dark movie, but it's a little dark. I mean, like the main character has a has a gambling problem that costs him his girlfriend and he doesn't get over it over the course of the movie. Um, there's some sad stuff going on uh, over the course of the thing. I mean, I, th I think the timelessness element of it is because in a lot of ways, like we're just talking about now, the movie is about real stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it gets into stuff about race. It's, I think, in a lot of ways, a great like character study, maybe a little too much, but it's a study of male competitiveness and like, you know, like how competitiveness can you know, drive the dynamic between men and, you know, like jockeying to be the alpha male in a relationship, you know, the way they, the way they're always critiquing each other on the court, um, you know, the, the stuff where they hustle each other, you know, like uh, you, you see when, when you first watch Billy at the game that Sydney's playing in, he's scouting everyone there. And like he, he recognizes Sydney as the mark for this particular day. But then later on, you know, Sydney recognizes that pressure point in Billy with Gloria and how sensitive he is about Gloria and how Billy, you know, Billy is insecure that he's going to lose Gloria with really good reason. So like, it, you know, it, and, you know, it gets into themes about men and women and stuff like that. Like, I think that a lot of the timelessness of the movie beyond, you know, the stuff on the court being really fun and, and you know, the relationship between Wesley and Woody being fun. I just All think the there's mama stuff jokes, that the, those scenes and the individual lines people remember. Yeah, you, yeah, your mom is an astronaut, which is just so <laughs> random and bizarre <laughs> as an insult. Like I, I just think 
there's a lot about the movie that feels lived in and real. And like a lot of Ron Shelton movies, like mm-hmm. it's about sports, but it's about more than sports. And I, and I think that's what's carried it. I will say if there was this montage and if Billy and Gloria stayed together, it would not be a very good movie. Um, and it certainly no. wouldn't have stood up, I don't think, over time. If it if it had a purely happy ending and if it had more of that like wacky good times between the two of them on the court, it wouldn't be the movie that it is. And and it, oh, no. I, to me, it no. really holds up brilliantly. I, it, it was not only very different than I remembered, but I think better in part because I've just like lived more life or whatever. But I, I think it's a better movie even than I remember it being. Yeah, it reminded me much more of like why people like Boulder. I mean, like, and, and, and so you can look past some of the, you know, Tim Robbins does not throw an authentic looking fastball right. in in uh, in Bull Durham. I mean, like it's it's very obvious. I mean, it's part of the character and whatever. But like all, even accepting all that, like the authenticity of the baseball does not come from Tim Robbins. It comes from the the world, and so the world here that's created is so good. Um, I agree with you, Brad. I, I liked it more than I remembered liking it, and I remembered liking it. I just yeah. remembered liking it for like fun, zany, like more screwball reasons than the movie actually is. It's just a better movie. There's a um, lot going on in the movie. Yeah. Can I, I want to say one thing about the timelessness. One thing I noticed, I think today it probably would have a montage in it somewhere because it just feels it's, it is not paced the way modern movies are paced. And it's not paced like a lot of sports movies from the time Billy parks his car on Venice beach to the time he finishes that best of five shootout with Sydney. That's 19 minutes of movie. That's a lot. Yeah. It's it's really and and I don't mind how long it takes. It's a lot of setup. As you said, there is like um, Andy, there is a sense of like he's found his mark. And so you need to see the, the you need to see this game unfold. You need to see what he's learning about this guy as it happens. Um, but it takes a long time. The, the best of five shootout. They show all five shots. There's time in between them. They're talking to each other in between those. That's a pretty s- slow paced scene um that that i don't think would be paced that way right now especially if you're doing a mainstream movie with you know if you're making this movie with um you know chadwick boseman and chris evans i don't think that scene plays out particularly particularly brett in a movie that's still under two hours long yeah it's not a long movie right so and you know they use up but i i think it's just because it's so important in establishing the world and establishing these characters then they can make other things shorter um that's what I'm saying. It's, yeah. it's, it's a two-hour movie. So it's not like it's 19 minutes of a two-hour and 40-minute movie. Um, so I just it also makes me remember that movies don't have to be two and a half hours or three hours long. But that's a different argument. Andy, any other uh, little trivia bits? we got a couple little things that I found. The, the category that they use in Jeopardy, foods that start with letter Q, actually became a category in 1997. Uh, they used foods that start with the letter Q. Uh, I would like to think there was a PA somewhere who had seen the movie and had been dying to get that onto an actual Jeopardy episode. Uh, Charlie Sheen, first choice for Billy Hoyle. Yeah. Turned it down because uh, he just didn't like basketball that much. Um, but it would have reunited. Obviously, we're talking about reuniting Woody and Wesley from Wildcats. They do two more movies together. This would have reunited Charlie Sheen and Wesley Snipes from Major League three years earlier. Obviously, another uh, big sports movie that was a huge hit. So Yeah. A um, couple bits of trivia. I, I mentioned earlier that Wesley and Woody played roles in getting each other cast. Woody had actually auditioned first for the movie and in talking with Ron Shelton recommended Wesley Snipes, you know, because they had stayed friends from Wildcats. And he's just like this guy, you know, used to do 
Shakespearean scenes in his football outfits. And he's just, he's amazing. And Snipes ended up getting cast first. By the way, almost the role, the role almost went to the guy who played his security guard friend. But uh, Wesley ended up the better hmm. actor, but that guy was a better basketball player. But that guy was in, his name is, I think, Silk Cozart. He was in a big running to get the lead, and he ended up ultimately playing the security guard. But when Wesley was at this point. Uh, that would have really dramatically changed the life arc <laughs> yes, it of Silk Cozart. But uh, Wesley at this point is cast, and he's reading with other people who would be opposite him, and he wants Woody in the movie. So he ended up at one point reading with Keanu Reeves, who Ron Shelton really wanted. And Wesley said, quote, Reeves would improvise and say something where there would be a natural response with me. And I just left him out there like dirty laundry. Like he basically he sandbagged Keanu Reeves's audition so he could get Woody back into the room so they could end up getting cast together. That's so awesome. They, they That's and look, it works. It works out better that it's Woody Harrelson oh, than I Keanu, Keanu Reeves. Yeah. No, that's not. It's a yeah. totally different movie. Um, you know, there's obviously the the dunk scene. You know, the dunk bet scene in the movie. In real life, they actually had a dunk bet where Snipes bet Woody that he couldn't uh, make it in three tries, and he only needed one. But it turned out that when Snipes was in his trailer, the crew lowered the rim. And he also put some stick on his hands <laughs> and he basically cheated the bet so he could get it. And uh, Wesley and it said- was a nine, It was, a, I believe, it either a nine or a nine and a half foot rim at the, on that last right. know, when he dunks in, in, the, in the tournament. Right. So they, they lowered the lower thing rim. down really. And what, like Wesley's watching this like, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. He, so he dunked on it. He's like, dude, you guys lowered the rim. And then he saw that he put all the st- uh, stick him on. Uh, there's that scene, remember, where- uh, Billy makes the joke about Lee Harvey Oswald's last words, which are him mm-hmm. getting assassinated by the CIA. Woody's dad in real life, Charles, is a convicted murderer, and he'd been in prison twice for murders, one of a federal judge. But his father had claimed to have been involved in the Kennedy assassination, that he was actually I believe, one of the people on, on the grassy knoll or that he had, a, huh, wow. he had a role in it and like that he played a part in the Kennedy assassination. So that's a bit of a meta well, reference inside, uh, yeah. right there yeah and then, and then uh, I, I i like this one um before we get to, to rings i like this one woody uh bob lanier was a coach on set um yes. and you know we mentioned that that uh woody had played some ball in college was talking smack to lanier they played one-on-one, and Harrelson described it later as, quote, the most embarrassing 15 minutes of my life, <laughs> which I always like to use just as a reminder to people that even Bob Lanier, who was probably retired for like a, 20 years at this point, um, probably hadn't picked up a ball in, in, in a decade. These guys who play at that level are a different species, and they are so good, and they will throttle you at any moment that you ever try to play them. So don't. That's, don't talk smack to former or current NBA players. I remember when, when Brian and I used to host uh, the LA Times blog, uh, the LA Times Lakers blog, and, and we, we had a very uh, active comment section. There, there was a guy that was a regular on there, and this guy was insane, but he used to insist all the time that he could destroy Luke Walton. You know, he didn't, he didn't like Luke Wall and white boy, you know, thought that Phil favored him because he was white. He's like, you give me three weeks to get back in shape. He's like, I promise you, 
I'll kill Luke. I offered to fly this guy in from Detroit. I'm like, if I can arrange Luke to do this, I will fly you in. Yep. I'm like, Luke, you will not get a point off Luke. He's like, well, you know, I just need to get back. You know, I'm like, Luke you don't doesn't know who you're need talking, to get you back. Know who you're talking to. I don't care who I'm talking to. I'm like, I, like, I like that this guy is like, I can beat this NBA player, but I'm going to need three weeks <laughs> to right. get in shape. Luke to beat spends an NBA his player. practices guarding Kobe. I'm Every like, single day, you? Luke goes to practicing practices against Kobe. I don't care who you are. Because you know what you're not doing every day? Going to work and guarding Kobe Bryant. Like, so Luke could play this not. game drunk in jeans and spot you 20 to 21. You wouldn't score on him. No. Not if he's trying. No. Um, and so, yeah. So, just it's a reminder. Uh, Bob Lanier, um, long since retired at that point, um, embarrassed Woody Harrelson in ways that he's never been embarrassed before or since, apparently. So, uh Good stuff there. And now that brings us to, hang on, of hang course, on. I got one thing. Oh. Can I go, can I do two things I want to throw out? Cause they're in my notes and I just yes. feel obligated to get them in one. Go ahead, McManaman. Uh, hilarious. Uh, when we talk about timeliness or, un- or lack thereof or whatever, hilarious that when they drop Sydney off at his crappy apartment, he says, drop me off at the Trump towers. Yeah. Yes. Uh, funny reference now in hindsight. And then the interesting piece of trivia that I, I don't know the answer to this question. I, I tried to Google it and I can't find it. I would like to know the number of movies in which Wesley Snipes says, see ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. It's definitely this one and New Jack City. He had like a catchphrase. I don't know if he did it in more movies than those two. Hmm. That is something worth looking up. <laughs> I tried and I can't find it. It's, it's much more prevalent if you Google it. The fact that he says it in New Jack City, I believe he says it when they drop the guy off the bridge. Or off the side of the building or whatever, they drop somebody. Yes. And he says, you know, yes. he's done enough bad movies that you could slide that in there without really hurting anything. Exactly. <laughs> and it's also kind of like, a, you know, you can say it in a lot. You can say it in a lot of settings. You know, it's it's the end of a basketball game. It's dropping you off of something tall to murder you. Like there's a lot of different contexts. You could just be leaving a party. And say <laughs> anyway, that's my two. Door. That's my two things yeah. I wanted to point out. Anything else in your notes? Because we were at the, the most critical part of any podcast where we. Uh, we have to to uh, grade this thing. Of course, we do it here on a uh, one to ten ring scale. It's a sports movie podcast. You must count the rings at all times, Brett Dawson. Um, you are our guest. You may go first. How many rings do you give White Man Can't Jump? So I listened to Dave talk about Space Jam. And mm-hmm. Dave had this question of whether you're ranking this relative to other sports movies or ranking it relative to movies. That does matter to me. And I'm going to say this is kind of relative to sports movies, but it's still not a real stretch. I would give it eight. I think it's a really good movie. And I think it's like a good movie independent of being a good sports movie. I might give yeah. it a nine if I'm only ranking it against sports movies, but I'm comfortable with an eight either way. Um, Fair I'm going to rank it against just movies in general. Uh, like you said, Brett, I'm going to give it because we allowed this with Dave eight and a half rings. I, I love this movie. I, I mean, there's a there are a few flaws in it and a few, you know, plotting points that you could quibble with, but it's really entertaining, really well acted, really fun. And I think it's really smart. So eight and a half rings. A half I ring think, would fall off, it. by the way. I, I would just, give that's, it eight. I mean, I, and I think it's, uh, I think it's right there, like in that just great, it's a great movie. It really is. It's a better movie than I remembered it being for reasons that I think are important. It's not just a little funnier than I remember or a little, it's like legitimately just a better movie. Like there's some little things about the, the plotting like we, we kind of docile, like, wait a minute, can't they just solve like Wesley's money problem at the end without this? The only way that they can do this by him going to play basketball, that's it. Um, like they've actually got money, like little stuff like that. But I feel like there's enough truth 
to why characters are doing things that they do that if you need to move the plot along to kind of just for expedience, and I believe in keeping movies under two hours when you can, I'm willing to make those trades. And I think, I think it's, it, it, the, the characters are pretty well drawn. They're incredibly well acted. Um, and I buy all of it. So I'm giving it eight rings. Uh, so this thing averages right around eight rings. I think it's our, our, our leader, Andy. Yeah, it's up there for sure. Um, you did this Brett on Dawson. any given Sunday. That's right. Brett Dawson. That's a better movie than any given Sunday. Brett, I'm just talking about ring count. <laughs> right. Any given Sunday was much more graded. And like Brett asked that question, are we grading against sports movies or, or every movie? The, the, the positives for any given Sunday are much more the soft bigotry of low expectations that come with uh, sports movies and just narrowing the category. You can put a, a white man can't jump up against other movies and it does well. Um, Brett Dawson. Anything you, we got going on? Stuff coming out you want to promote? Oh, uh, we got um, some stuff. we should read. Uh, we got some stuff coming. I, I don't, like, some of it is still in progress that I don't want to talk about, but we'll be doing some more. People will be able to get some uh, some upcoming analysis from all of us together, uh, the three of us and, That's right. and Bill Orem coming up. It'll be a weekly thing, at least once a week, I think probably twice a week, where we just kind of have some sort of roundtable discussions. They'll be written as opposed to us sitting around talking like this. Um, but hopefully people enjoy those. we got a whole lot of that stuff coming up and I think we're still running a free 90 day trial at the athletics. So go check that out. Very good. We would need an awfully long table and round table to socially distance and still do this. That's fair. Appropriately. So, all right, Brett, thanks so much, man. This was fun. Thank you guys. I appreciate it. Thanks Brett. 